We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And now, an ad from Dad. All right. Save money on car insurance when you bundle home and auto with Progressive. Can I take these off? All right. What is this? This looks good. Wow. That's well made. Where did you get this? I'm talking to you with the hair. Yeah, where did you get this? It's good stuff. That's solid. That's not veneer. That's solid stuff. Progressive can't save you from becoming your parents, but we can save you money when you bundle home and auto. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates and other insurers. Discounts not available in all states or situations. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome back, everyone, to the Gator Nation Football Podcast. My name is Alan Williams. As always, with the illustrious James DiVirgilio. Man, that was not a fun week for Gator football, but we proceed with the pod as always. We're here to give you our latest thoughts on last week's game, our insights into the coaching search, and really, hopefully, everything you need to know this week. Um, We'll be hitting... The coaching search pretty heavy, so stay tuned, stay buckled in. But let's talk about this week's game, the debacle that was Missouri. James, we asked the question last. Of all the sounds you'll hear this summer. <laughs> this might be your new favorite. You're blending up the new chocolate chip iced cap at Tim Hortons. Real chocolate chips blended into an iced cap for a sweet summer treat. It's Tim Hortons frozen take on a cappuccino. And it just might be the best sound of summer. Hurry into Tim Hortons for the new chocolate chip iced cap. Limited time at participating restaurants. Last week, essentially, does it matter what happened in this game coming up? And we both said, kind of not. Do you still feel this way after watching that game? I do still feel that way, but we talked last week about recruiting and how important it's going to be to maintain most of this class. Games like that cause the recruits to panic, and I think you saw some of that over the weekend with Matt Corral's comments most notably sticking out in my head about how things are tough right now, it's difficult, the coaches are trying to encourage us, but that is not ideal. I, I think if the players are playing better and you're competitive, the recruits feel better about it. But there can be a narrative now that other coaches can sell that says, hey, not only 
Not only should you not go to Florida because you don't know who the coach is, but you shouldn't go to Florida because the talent level there is low. And look at that because they're getting smacked by Missouri as proof. And that's not something you want to have happen on the negative recruiting trail, although that is absolutely what is going to be happening this week. So it doesn't affect me as a fan with regards to a Saturday watching the Gator game because I don't really care if we get blasted, but it does affect me as a fan and supporter of the program because that's going to make it harder for us to recruit. You know, I thought it didn't really matter to me. And I don't think a win or a loss would affect me either way. You know, like a win is not like, oh man, we beat Missouri awesome. But I did think that was a pretty embarrassing result. And maybe not the result, the effort. All around, everybody seemed not focused, not in, not motivated. And it made me pretty frustrated. You know, I think it was the one of the few times that I was not super excited that I had to watch all of that game because um, we had to do the podcast. And I was a little pissed, I got to say. You know, I, these guys were giving no effort. Not no effort, almost no effort. And the second week in a row, they gotten blasted. I think against Georgia, that's a little bit explainable. Against Missouri, there's really no, I don't know. There's no reason to get crushed by not a great Mizzou team. And so I was pretty frustrated, despite the fact that I realized the big picture doesn't matter. But it wasn't a good look for our program or for those guys out on the field. Yeah, it sort of feels like this is the lowest low that a Gator program has been at. We're in the midst of four consecutive losses now. Muschamp season went four and eight, but like we've alluded to before, we very easily could have just one win on this season. And I think this team is showing you what its what its actual mean or expected return is, which is really two or three games. And that's crazy to believe at the University of Florida because that should never happen. That's the reality. The University of Florida should never go into Missouri and lose by that kind of score with all of the natural advantages we have. And it's not surprising that David Reese, after the game, had some very, very strong comments given what he just saw go down. David Reese is, of course, our starting middle linebacker, and he is a sophomore. And he says, and I quote, I just want to say one thing. We loved every single one of our coaches that's been through here. It's unfortunate what's happened to them. I hate the way we represented our coaches like that today with this game. Those guys really care for us and gave us a really good game plan to do what we had to do. It's sometimes disappointing when everybody doesn't want to come together and just play for each other. That's sad to see. We've still got a lot to play for. Me personally and our defense, we want to play for those guys. We can't have appearances like we just had today. That's unacceptable. Alan, he also went on to talk about the importance of playing for the coaches and their families and the next jobs that they are going to get, as well as the players playing for the new coach. So he made a lot more than just that comment, but that's a soundbite that got a lot of traction over the weekend. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I love his honesty, and I and I don't think this was a case of him throwing people under the bus. I think he was just being real with what went down. And this is, man, it's tough. I realize these guys are young. And this is a 11 a.m. start for them, essentially, out in Missouri. It's probably hard to get up for an empty stadium against Missouri, a team that not a lot of respect for. They're missing a ton of guys, just a ton of guys. And some of the older guys you'd think would get them in, you know, get them ready to go. Marcel Harris, Jordan Sherritt, a lot of these veteran guys, not there. So I can see 
a route which this would have happened. I think what makes it doubly frustrating is you're thinking there'd be a little bit of a bounce with the new coaching staff, Malik Zaire starting, you know, just a little more effort than what was given. Um, and from the jump, it just didn't seem like they were in it. Um, and that's right. I mean, these guys, these coaches have to go on and coach somewhere else. Um, these players still hopefully want to improve. And even though the season is dead, uh, there's still a decent amount to play for personally. And I hopefully they'll realize that a little bit and win or lose the rest of the schedule that we'd see a little more grit and grind from them. I thought he really nailed it with this quote. To me, this encapsulates exactly what Ben Troop was talking about on our show last week. And he could have added factors like we're playing for the program and we're playing for the previous players and we're playing for the alums. Uh, and it would have meant the same. And so I definitely don't think that he was blasting his teammates. In fact, Randy Shannon said in Monday's presser that he heard about David Reese's quote. He liked his quote. He liked the leadership David Reese showed. And he was so impressed as a sophomore that this guy sort of had the chutzpah to rally his teammates around a critical mission of a football team. And I think David Reese might be a little bit limited on the football field with the sideline to sideline speed, but his character, as well as his ability to learn the defense and sort of step up in a time of trouble, uh, cannot be promoted or exemplified enough. This is what you want to see out of a young football player when everything around him is falling apart. I'm sure in his wildest dreams, he didn't think he'd be in the midst of a season like he is now. But to not just go down with the ship and do what's easy, to not just ride this thing out and start complaining, but to say, hey, we've got to look out for the best interests of other people as well. This is not just about my playing time or me walking around out here watching film. That shows a lot of maturity, a lot of maturity and a lot of life wisdom. And so I give him credit for that. And that's something this football team is going to need more in the future. It is certainly something our next coaching staff is going to have to instill as uh, any new coaching staff will have plenty of stories where the culture change is one of the most difficult things to do. So, Alan, you mentioned effort that went on in this game. Was it primarily effort? Was there a flaw in the defense? Was it the amount of injuries we've had now? It, the amount of injuries plus suspensions has reached a critical level, much like that four and eight year with Muschamp. If you had to put your finger on one thing that led to such a significant blowout on Saturday, what would be the most important contributor to that kind of loss? This is a tough one to just put one thing. I think there's plenty of blame to be sped around, but possibly the suspensions slash injuries. There's not a lot of depth out there right now, especially in the secondary. And Missouri really took advantage of that. This is a bad day for our star freshman corners to both have not a great day. And the defense wasn't put in great positions all day, both by the special teams and by the offense. And those safeties in this defense are expected to make some plays in the run and they didn't do it. Um, we're playing true freshmen or guys who are maybe not ready, especially in run defense, like Jawan Taylor and Brad Stewart and some of these other guys. So they were catching us. They were gashing us. And they're also abusing our linebackers in coverage. We saw Christian Garcia just get smoked on one play, um, which is definitely what's going to happen if you isolate him, as we've seen all year. So I don't know there's a particular flaw in the game plan or what we're trying to do uh, our corners have held up and they did not in this game. And that was just a bad time for them to have their worst game of the year. Yeah. It was a bad matchup for us going into it, which we had mentioned. And we talked about explosive plays. I said last week, that was the most important stat to look at. Well, take a look at that and you'll, you'll see how easily 
Missouri won this game. Missouri does that really well. They push the ball down the field, and and Florida's style of defense is to play press man on the corners, up close in your face, get a jam, and multiple times Missouri's receivers were able to easily beat that jam and then outrun our defenders, and then you know Drew Locke has the arm to be able to throw the kind of balls he needed. I think maybe the biggest difference, Allen, was we were playing two guys who hadn't played defensive line since high school at defensive end in this game at times, and I thought that showed. Drew Locke had tons of time back there. He was very comfortable, and that's something that he was able to do against Georgia as well. So if Drew Locke has time, he will punish you, and he had time. I think the corners gave plenty of effort in this game. I think we just wound up being on the short end of the stick with regards to both our safeties and our linebackers, which we know have been a woeful weakness coupled with the injuries we've had, led to this kind of result. Uh, I think in the trenches, it was obvious that we weren't willing to give as much effort as Missouri. I give a lot of credit to Barry Odom and having his Missouri team play as hard as they're playing at this stage of the year, given the awkward results they've had. But there's no doubt that team is playing with some momentum right now. And, and I think they're thinking they want to finish strong, whereas this Florida team is a lame duck. They're thinking, let me get out of here not being injured. Let me get out of here just getting on to the next staff. Uh, and a question that came up, Alan, was... Primarily, are we seeing the effects this season of poor recruiting, poor coaching, both of those factors? What what would be the the underlying reason for such an historic loss to a Missouri team that is not a good one, at least on paper? I don't know. Uh, defensively, like I've said, I've mentioned a few of our flaws there. I mean, you start off the game with Brandon Powell fumbling a punt, which he's never done before. Um, there's the interception. Um, they kept having <laughs> good plays. This is the first time Eddie Pinera hasn't kicked the ball out of the end zone every time. And we gave up bad returns every time. So our our guess about that was absolutely right. That those that, that cover scheme would be just as bad if they got exposed. I don't know, big plays. I, I, I don't look at it as, you know, coaching really. I, I think at linebacker, we're really thin partly because of recruiting possibly, but suspensions don't help that injuries don't help that. Uh, All three of those freshmen who are supposed to come in here and play this year are not available. Um, And then we've had some other injuries. So it just is what it is on defense offense. I think was abysmal. We can talk about some of the coaching decisions on offense. I think that would be primarily where I look at coaching defense. I don't know, even though we gave up 42 points, it wasn't all just on defense. Yeah, I think at this stage, and we've talked about this a lot on this year's pod, but probably to wrap this up for the rest of the season and to end my comments on this question, because it is a good one. You've heard for the past two and a half years that I thought it's been both. I thought the number one gap in McIlwain's tenure was recruiting. It took him way too long to get it established. We completely whiffed on entire position groups during certain years, and we built an awkward roster. And there is no doubt that this defense having to survive two turnover years where we lost a lot of players to the NFL is significantly weaker. And if you have to go position group by position group on the defense and ask who is going to probably play in the NFL, you are going to come up with the lowest number of players that you would expect to even crack a practice squad roster for a Gators defense in a long time. And that's looking at talent alone, not current production. Uh, So you've got some guys that can play at the corner position. You've got some freshmen who I think are going to be good safeties. But at the linebacker spot, it's hard to argue that a single linebacker on our entire team is going to touch an NFL field at any given time. Uh, And that's a really, really big problem in the SEC. 
uh, as well as any other Power 5 conference. So I think we've missed the boat on recruiting. We are not recruiting at a level we should be recruiting out of Florida, and that's costing us. And obviously, like you mentioned, Alan, part of recruiting is building depth. And we got whacked with depth, as we've talked about all year long, and on the beginning of the preseason episode of this very show, that without the suspended players and without the depth, this team would suffer, and that we could have a really low floor. And that's what we're experiencing now. So let's transition this to the offensive side of the ball, and you mentioned it. What did you think of, of Zaire and how he led the offense? Did it look different to you? Was it more or less the same? What were your thoughts on, on Malik? I think the problem was that it was more or less the same. They're running these plays that don't take advantage of his skill set. I know it's hard to totally revamp your offense in one week. But they weren't leading to his strengths until like the middle of the game. They I think he's a guy who can throw over the middle of the field. He has, he has some success doing that. Um, he's a guy who can hurt you with his feet, but he's throwing those same wide receiver screens, except for the ball's getting there half as quickly as it's coming out of Frank's hand. It was crazy to me that we were still running essentially the same offense with him. And it took us a while. And eventually we got going a little bit. It was far too late. He looked okay. I mean, not good by any means, but not awful. I guess that is, uh, maybe better for this Florida quarterback position than what we've seen in the past. I don't think it was him that killed us. I'll say that. What about you? Yeah, this was what we thought. Doug Nussmeyer is now, without a doubt, the worst offensive coordinator since Steve Adazio. And I think he's maybe worse than Steve Adazio. And that wow, is a bold. big statement for me. If you knew me at the time Steve Adazio was here, I didn't think it'd get any worse than Steve. But I really wonder what Steve would be doing in a season like this one. It would be bad, but the, Doug Nussmeyer is historically bad. I mean, I have to really question his ability to even understand football theory at all. And you mentioned parts of that, Alan, with regards to running those little bubble screens. We routinely ran the ball into eight and nine man fronts. It's just unbelievable to me how poor Doug Nussmeyer is at his job. He is extremely bad, and all Gator fans can be thankful that this man will no longer and hopefully ever be a part of a Florida program again because he is an absolute dumpster fire. Malik Zaire, I think, has some skills like you mentioned, Alan. I think he reads a defense okay. I think he throws off platform a lot. His footwork is not very good. He doesn't drive downhill, which is why he lacks a lot of zip on his ball. But he does have a lot of touch and finesse in his passing game, and you can certainly exploit that as well as the fact that he could be a decent runner. Uh, But you cannot exploit that when you're continuing to run and pass into the wrong style defenses at the wrong time. And and it doesn't matter who your quarterback is. It's not going to be pretty. So I have no problem with whether it's Zaire or Franks in the game. At this point in time, as long as Doug Nussmeyer is calling the plays, it's just not going to matter. The guy's absolutely horrible at what he does. And so given the hand that we're dealt right now, is there a winnable game on our schedule for the rest of this season? Can we beat UAB, Allen? I mean, what's your feeling based upon what we've seen? How does this get any better? And are we realistically going to lose out? It's possible, certainly. I mean, I, you look at the schedule, and we'll, we'll get to South Carolina, obviously. That's not going to be an easy game. I'm not, I don't think I'm going to pick us to win that. UAB, I don't know. They look, they've looked decent. They're their bowl-eligible team. And Florida State, gosh, who knows? I mean, both teams are such a dumpster fire, but I don't like – if we play anywhere near what we played – as we did against Missouri, we're going to lose the rest of the games, probably to UAB as well. 
Yeah, and that's so, a shocker, right? Because UAB, a, UAB, Allen's yeah. a program that didn't have a football team a couple years ago. I mean, they were there was it was going to be gone. <laughs> it's going to be eliminated, and here they are. And you and I are realistically saying that <laughs> we could probably lose to UAB. I mean, that's how bad this is. Yeah, and you know, just to give some props to Steve Adazio, I don't know that was his fault. He's an offensive line coach, and someone, you know, Urban Meyer made him an offensive coordinator. I, <laughs> You know, I think it says something about Doug Nussmeyer. If you could take a guy who's an offensive line coach, who's never been an offensive coordinator and throw him into the fire, he still might be slightly better than Doug Nussmeyer has been this, this year. I mean, it's just, it's horrible to see. Um, and we're not quite to coaching corner here yet, but we're going to get to Randy Shannon here. If there was any thought about retaining Randy Shannon as the coach, just show him the Missouri tape that ended any kind of speculation of what if he does well and went out. Uh, so thankfully that's probably a gift. I mean, the fact that we were kicking those field goals was ludicrous. Absolutely ludicrous. I th- That was the most conservative thing I've seen in a long time. And we've seen some conservative coaching from Muschamp and McElwain at certain points over the last eight years, but that was crazy to me. Um, I, I think, you know, we had opportunities to score some points. We were at fourth and one, on their end zone or near their end zone several times. And we're kicking field goals. We're kicking 20 yard field goals. So um, when we were down like 18 or 19 or something like that. So that's unconscionable to me. I, that feels like that's something you and I, who've never coached a day in our life, really at any kind of significant level would never do. And I think most people watching at home were thinking the same thing. So uh, give me your thoughts on Randy kicking those field goals. Uh, well, Randy Shannon, as we talked about last week, was never a realistic and viable candidate to me. He ran Miami's program straight into the ground very quickly. I think he's a really nice guy. I think he's a walking coaching cliche if you listen to his press conferences, but I think he's a really nice man. I mean, I think this guy is a guy who cares. I think he tries to be positive. I think he tries to embody the right things. He's just not a very good head football coach. I think as a defensive coordinator, you can be simple and you can win. Missouri has switched to simple on purpose and they're winning. So I think when people knock him like they have earlier this year, uh, they don't really get the whole picture. And, and you evidenced that, Alan, on that on that Christian Garcia play. We blitzed. So for all of you out there that love blitzing and wish we were just way more aggressive this season, that's what happens when you blitz, when Christian Garcia is your linebacker. He has to guard the running back one-on-one and he gets beat by 10 yards as though it's you and your friend in the backyard and you're eight years old and your friend's 16, right? It's like, it's a joke. You can't do it. And so I think the reality is there's lots of things you wish you could do, but you can't do given our personnel. And Randy just isn't the guy for this job. I don't think he's really ever going to be the guy for a major job. Uh, I think he'd be wise to stay as a defensive coordinator, probably really for the rest of his career and enjoy the fruits of that labor. But, uh, you know, maybe he'll find a spot in a middling program, but regardless, not the guy for this job. So blessing in that situation. And yes, Alan, you're you're really encapsulating a major point when you say that that was one of the most conservative things you've seen in a long time, maybe the most conservative thing. And we have seen so many conservative things that really says a lot. But Crazy. it makes it makes no sense. Like we're at the point in our season where you just go for fourth down and you kick onside kicks and you do a bunch of silly stuff all the time. Yeah, because your season is over and you at least entertain coach. you entertain whatever your fans have left and you show the country that you're willing to be aggressive with your next coaching job. But this is who Randy Shannon is. This is who he is, and it's a primary reason why I think Gator fans have a underlying fear 
of bringing in any type of defensive coordinator because it kind of comes right back to this. So a couple of notes on Randy Shannon's presser on Monday. Uh, He did wear a bright orange Florida Gator shirt. So I have to think that somebody told him, Randy, you have to wear a Gator shirt to these pressers. So good for him. He did that. Um, Eddie, of course, this was a surprise to me, Alan. We we mentioned last week that on special teams, we were going to try to make stuff happen, and <laughs> that was a disaster. Uh, but Eddie, those five kicks Eddie kicked short, they were not on purpose. Apparently, Eddie was just not hitting the ball right that day, which That's hard seems, for me to believe. seems hard to believe as well to me. I, I don't know if he's protecting Nord here, but then I don't know why a guy like Randy Shannon would come out and talk about Eddie that way. But it seems to me like you wanted to really amp up the special teams you would kick it short on purpose. And a guy who puts everything out for a touchback probably doesn't miss five of those. But take that for what it's worth. Our special teams was a disaster (laughs) attempting to cover or do anything right. Uh, Other news and notes, quarterback for this week is still Malik. So uh, not really a surprise there. I think Zaire is going to be the guy for the rest of the year until he leaves and or tries to get another year here at Florida. Uh, We do have a tremendous amount of injuries, which Randy Shannon mentioned, not as an excuse, but simply to say that there's a lot of young guys getting playing time at positions maybe they didn't even play or weren't going to play at Florida, but they are now. And then he did comment favorably on David Reese's comments, which I alluded to earlier, and he had a conversation with David Reese about that. And I think it's clear that Randy Shannon feels like there's a leadership void on this team right now. It's a young team without a voice, and I think, if anything, he's going to try to really encourage David Reese to step into that. And probably the last news and notes is that Randy Shannon, I think, is the right guy for this interim job because of the fact that he he is a walking coaching cliche, but he will continue to positively represent the university. He's not going to say anything stupid. He's not going to make any dumb decisions with the media. He's just going to sort of survive the sinking ship and then get on out of here. And uh, I think that's all we can really hope for at this point in time with this season Allen. And and that's kind of how the rest of the show is going to go this year. You're not going to hear a lot of film study analysis from me anymore as a listener of this show. I don't think you guys want that. I can assure you I don't want to do it. It doesn't really matter. So Alan and I are going to continue to focus on these macro, these macro narratives. And of course, we're going to talk a lot about the coaching search as we get news each week, as we kind of funnel down our own coaching candidates. We'll we'll focus the lens on the future while maintaining enough balance to talk about what we're seeing in the games on a week-by-week basis that we think may have relevance to what's happening. So that's sort of just a, a mid-show side note on where the podcast is, given the the current season that we are being dealt with. Uh, Alan, let's transition and talk about the coaching search. I know you had some things you wanted us to look at ranking-wise. Yeah, let's, let's move our attention to something more hopeful, more positive. Before we get in and talk about each of the individual candidates, I wanted to get your opinion on, you know, we li- we listed us some factors that would be important in a coaching search, but I was wondering what you thought was most important. Now, if I give you four factors here, and you can add one if you'd like, how would you rank these in order of importance and looking for a coach at this moment for the University of Florida? This is maybe not universal, but for our specific situation, I'll give you these four. Recruiting prowess, experience, like overall philosophy, if you want to include offensive philosophy in that, you can and general personality. This is interesting because some of these bleed over into each other. And so you could say that personality obviously affects recruiting prowess. Uh, but I'm going to go with with philosophy number one. That's my most important thing 
And the reason for that is pretty simple. I think we've had a mismatch of football philosophy for several years in a row now here at Florida. I think we need to correct that. I think we need a guy who understands the game, understands the theory of the game, and has an excellent philosophy on how they want to win, coach, and handle this program, given the resources that they have afforded to them being in the state of Florida. Second one is a little bit tricky because experience for me means a lot, as everyone knows, under the three-year test. But I'm going to go with experience to mean, in your example, like how long have they coached? Do they have a traditional resume based upon whatever? Um, so if you if you turn that to the three-year test, Alan, that's going to be technically number one. Experience will be number one. But I'm not going to go with it that way. I'm going to say recruiting powers is number two. Experience is number three. And personality is number four if I had to go with those. And again, I'm sort of adding some caveats because these things can bleed into each other. So philosophy, recruiting, experience, personality. Those are my four. How would you rank those? I think of the same list. And I would say about philosophy, we have to have someone who's an offensive-minded coach unless we just, you know, Bill Belichick wanted to come and coach our team or something like that. The the state of Florida is crying out right now for someone who could come in and inject some life into like an offensive minded program. Um, recruiting prowess, you have to be able to recruit the state of Florida. Recruiting is the lifeblood of college football. I, I don't think we can repeat the same mistake with Jim McElwain. Experience, I would say, I don't really value this as much. I don't need a guy who's been a head coach for 15 years and won three national titles, but I do want someone, like I said last week, I think the basement is someone who has been a head coach before. I would not hire a coordinator. So that maybe is number one. That's because that would disqualify a lot of people. But as long as they have that experience, head coaching experience, I'll, I'll put it as number three, because I don't need someone with a lifetime of experience. And then personality. And the only reason I put personality on this is because it seemed to be a major factor in the firing of Jim McElwain. And obviously wins and losses was number one. But as Scott Strickland said, there were other factors at play. And so it has to be someone's personality. Can they handle the spotlight? Um, can they deal with the scrutiny? And are they not a total a-hole? Uh, so that would be important. And normally I would say, I don't care what our coach's personality is like in general if he's winning. And so it's less important. But maybe it's even up there, maybe number three at this point for me, is I want us to see us hire a guy who's a fit personality wise. Now you could do what Nebraska did. And, you know, when they fired Bo Pelini, who was a really bad fit for them culturally, they went out and hired the nicest guy they could find in Mike Riley. And that has not worked out as well for them. So I don't want to say personality is important, but I think culturally it has to be a fit. Um, and so that's how I put those same for a lot of the same reasons. Okay, James, a question that we got um, to the podcast there's an early signing day. If you're not familiar with this, there's been a change in the NCAA rules that there's a little window in early December where recruits are allowed to sign and then it'll close and it'll open back up again in early February. Um, what kind of effect is this having on our coaching search? A significant one. If, if Scott Strickland is to be believed, which I think he is, that his goal would be to have someone in place by that time. Uh, that's, uh, by most pundits' estimations, going to be something that really changes the nature of college football, to be able to lock in your class like this, build momentum, signify to some of these big, big recruits that are waiting until February that here's the class we have, here's how strong this is. 
And I think since most of our class was trending towards being an early signee class, it affects us more than it does some other programs who are more likely going to wait till February anyway to sign a lot of their big guys. So this is a large, large, large thing for this program to balance right now. I would imagine that unless Scott Frost had like a superstar slam dunk candidate that he had to wait until January for, he is hair on fire trying to get a guy announced before that early signing day. And when you say Scott Frost, I assume you mean Scott Strickland. But um, yes, this is a big, big piece of the pie here. Um, I mean, I, it's a total wild card too. No one really knows how this is going to play out or how what how this is going to affect coaching searches and hiring and firing and recruiting. You know, your best guess is it's going to be significant. So I, I would see us, I think I would see us move a little earlier than we might have in another kind of year where it's more a traditional kind of process. And so I think Scott Strickland's right. I think you almost have to have somebody in there before that early signing period. Otherwise you're going to lose out on a ton, a ton of these recruits. I think most people think, and again, we don't know, but this new December date is going to become essentially the national signing day for a lot, for a majority of recruits out there who want to get this done and over with. And I think schools want to get it done and over with. Of course, there'll be some high-profile guys who string it out and some guys who are shopping around who don't like their fit and want to see if something else comes open. But yeah, it's going to be significant. It's significant to our process. And the difficult thing is nobody really knows you know, how this is going to affect it truly. All right, Alan, let's get to what I think most of us want to really talk about. Who are the candidates that we like? We last week teed you up with every candidate that we thought was viable for the job. Uh, we missed a couple maybe, that other people are talking about. I don't think they're necessarily realistic for this job, but we'll, we'll open this segment talking about them. We will then go down the list of the candidates we talked about last week in a quick fashion and basically eliminate them or promote them to our list. And we will then give you, in order, from number five to number one, Alan and I's coaching candidate list for the University of Florida. So, Alan, let's start with two guys we did not talk about last week. One guy had an article written about him yesterday. I think it's really just one journalist writing an article because he wants this particular guy more so than anything being behind it. But the article is written about David Shaw, who is the head coach of Stanford, who came from the Jim Harbaugh tree, had Andrew Luck his first year there, has done an exemplary job. He's 70 and 20 as a head coaching record, and he's got a lot of nice stats behind him. He is a defensive-minded guy. Uh, their offense typically ranks in the 50s at Stanford, and they run a pro-style, very power-based system, which I think most Florida fans would cringe at now. Your thoughts on David Shaw being a candidate, Alan? I don't really see much to it. I think he's an excellent coach, and he's a really good fit at Stanford. I mean, people talk about him maybe going to the NFL – and they say he doesn't want to leave Stanford. So I can't imagine him leaving Stanford for a place like Florida. And I don't think we would have much interest in him other than the fact that he's just overall an excellent coach. But I don't think he's the right hire at this time. So this feels just like a total guess by this person trying to get you to click on their article. Yeah, I agree. It made some noise. I got a lot of text about it. But I think he is a very solid coach. I think what he's done at Stanford has been very nice. I think he's very happy there. And you have the same questions you would have with any West Coast guy. Shaw has no ties to Florida. 
He runs a system that is a power system primarily because it's a way to be opposite of other teams in the Pac-12. He would have a heck of a time competing with that kind of style in the SEC. It's not really contrarian, and it would not be a good fit, in my opinion, uh, regardless of how well he has done there and how many guys have gone to the league to be prominent players from Stanford. I would not think that David Shaw is a candidate we should consider. Uh, Second guy is Gary Patterson, another defensive-minded guy uh, at TCU. Been there for a long, long time. He tends to get rumored to to go to other schools when the jobs are open. He has not been rumored uh, in all reality to come to Florida, but question came up. Thoughts on him as a candidate? You know, if, if he said that he wanted to come to Florida, I think we would have to really consider it. This guy is, I think, you know, a top 10 coach in college football right now. What he's done at TCU has been fairly remarkable, and he's been there a long time. Shepherd them from a non-Power 5 team into the Big 12, and they've been contenders in the Big 12 most of the time they've been there. I think he's got them to a point now where they're going to be a solid program year in, year out, and that's pretty remarkable considering where they're coming from. Um, he doesn't check all of my boxes. He's a little older. Um, you know, he, he does have a defensive kind of oriented past, although their offense has been excellent the last few years. But I just don't see him realistically considering it, and I don't think we're looking at him. But if for some reason we got wind of that, we'd have to like do all of our due diligence because he's an excellent, excellent coach. Yeah, and he's an example of a defensive coordinator who – Great defensive mind, right? Who really focused on flipping the offensive script midway through his tenure at TCU because he started to lose too many games, 10 to 7, 13 to 10, and then almost kind of lost his way with the defense, maybe by over-focusing on the offense, and is seemingly returning the balance this season, I think, to the program. But absolutely an excellent coach. I don't think he moves the needle for me in terms of like raw excitement when it comes to looking at the future. Not necessarily because he's older, but because I don't think he's leaving TCU. And if he did, I don't know that him coming to Florida is necessarily the world's greatest fit. My biggest concern with Gary Patterson would be, is he more excellent football coach than he is brand builder? And he built TCU because he's an excellent football coach, but I don't know that he's Urban Meyer where he built Utah because he could take Utah and make them incredibly great based upon excellent recruiting. That's kind of the difference, and there's some X's and O's guys that I think struggle at a school like Florida because they can't get the proper players in. I don't know that Gary's that way, but you're certainly right to say that he's a top 10, top 15 coach, and you would absolutely talk to him, get his ideas on what the job would look like, uh, and consider him very seriously. If you're now saying to yourself, oh, wait a minute, isn't David Shaw in the same category? Uh, He's close, yes. I just think that Gary Patterson probably has more of a style and just a more realistic scenario uh, that would fit Florida over a guy like David Shaw at this point, maybe hence the lean there. Okay, I'm going to walk you through every candidate we talked about last week, and you're going to give me your thumbs up or thumbs down with a quick reason as to why that person is getting the thumbs up or thumbs down to go into your short list for coaches. And we're going to start with the most prominently talked about guy, Scott Frost. Thumbs up. We're going to get to him. Yeah, he's he's in he's in my list. We'll talk more about him in a second, but he checks all of the boxes and then some. In fact, it's hard to find a guy that's more of a rising star than he is at this point in time. Uh, even in the past year or two or three out of coaching candidates, what he's putting together at UCF is very special. Dan Mullen. Dan Mullen, Allen. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Still on the list. Um, like we said, he's a very f- floor candidate, but a high floor. I'm going to thumbs down Dan Mullen. 
if I'm the athletic director of Florida, I don't want this guy. I don't want his super heavy run base spread option offense. He's not a fit for me. And so therefore I'm thumbs downing him. I'm not giving him any more consideration. Uh, he's off my list. Mike Norvell of Memphis. Thumbs up young guy, but still really intriguing. Yeah. Mike, Mike Norvell gets thumbed up in like my bullpen category. Uh, a lot of people have in the primary category. He's on, he's on my, he's on my short list. He may or may not make my top five, uh, but he's certainly a guy that I'm gonna, I'm gonna vet. I'm gonna look into, and I'm gonna seriously consider talking further with Mike Gundy. Thumbs up for the mullet. Um, I don't know if he's realistic, but I would still keep him on in my coaching funnel. Absolutely, I'm on the next step with Mike Gundy. I think he makes it through the filter. I think his three-year test is good. What he's doing at Oklahoma State is solid. He's very competitive amongst the best teams in the country year in and year out. Whether or not he could turn the hump at Florida, I don't know, or turn the corner at Florida, I don't know. But he certainly moves into the next round of my coaching search. Willie Taggart at Oregon. Yeah, Willie Taggart's uh, a guy's very compelling. Thumbs up for sure. I'm going to thumbs down Willie Taggart. He's got a losing, a losing head coaching record. In his entire tenure, which you could say had a lot of rebuild projects, which he did. He's in the midst of a really difficult year one in Oregon. And year ones are okay with me in the three-year test. It t- you can take a lot of lumps in year one. That's totally fine. There's something about him that doesn't feel like he has what I want in totality. And I've mentioned this before. He feels more like an offensive mind than he does a winning head coach at the top level. I could eat those words. And I will happily eat those words if Oregon two years from now becomes some sort of juggernaut as an entire team. Uh, but I, I, I'm going to remove him from the list. And a lot of that has to do with what I said, coupled with the fact that it's year one for him at Oregon. I just don't think he's leaving there. And I'm not necessarily sure that I, I want to deal with that package right now. Matt Campbell at Iowa State, your boy. Yeah, of course. He's got to be on the list. Absolutely. Matt Campbell's on my list, and he's there with high consideration moving on to the next round. Justin Fuente coming off a loss this past weekend with Virginia Tech. Yes, of course. One of the best still young guys, up-and-coming guys in America. Absolutely. Fuente gets next consideration as well. Charlie Strong talked about him last year. I mean, last year talked about him last week. Uh, Thumbs up, thumbs down for you on Charlie. Out. I'm out on Charlie. I like him as a person and as a position coach or a coordinator, but definitely not as the next head coach. I echo those thoughts. Exactly. Charlie Strong is off my list. Dino Babers at Syracuse. I'm going to have to say off my list. I mean, he would be like on a deep list. Um, It's just too early for him at Syracuse. And that goes along with him being a little older. That's a bad combination. So I'm out. Yeah, he's off my list as well at this time. Jeff Brom of Purdue. I wanted to keep him on the list, but man, it's just, this season is not going as well. And I have to say, I mean, you know, I I could be convinced to go do a super deep dive on every Purdue game, but right now they've just not shown me enough that he's ready to take the leap. Yeah, I think Jeff Brom is is a guy you watch. It's like if you play fantasy football, you click the button on player to watch, but not for this year's coaching search. Maybe if the coaching search was two years from now, he'd be a guy you'd really watch with high interest, but he's not quite ready. I'd go ahead and I'd take Jeff Brom off my list. DJ Durkin and Maryland. Off my list, just simply for the fact that he's a defensive coordinator. I think it's still a little early on him as well. 
I feel the same way there. I think DJ is a guy who we've mentioned on the program as having his star potentially rising. Dealt a really bad hand with injuries this year at Maryland. It's way too early for him to be anointed to this job and generate the kind of excitement we need. And he's also a defensive guy, which violates both you and I, Allen's number one rule of philosophy at this point in time. Okay, here's a guy that violates the rule, but I'm sure both of us are going to say he'd get a pass through, Bob Stoops. Yeah, of course. I mean, we talked a lot about him last week and maybe not the most realistic candidate, but again, if he'll talk, we'll listen. Same same boat there. You got to talk with Bob Soup if he's serious about it and he'd move on to your next round. Okay, David Shaw, I think both of us are going to thumbs down this one given the maybe A, the realistic scenario with regards to this and then B, some of the mismatches with both offensive style, philosophy, and just coming all the way across the country to a new recruiting base. So Chad Indeed. Chad Morris Allen, close close game against UCF this past weekend. Former Clemson offensive coordinator. I know it violates your own personal rule not to hire a coordinator. Does he get through your next round? Well, yeah, I think you know he is a head coach right now at SMU. They're they're a solid team, and they're, he's done a nice job there. I'll keep him on the list for now. I think Chad Morris goes through. Uh, I think what he's doing at SMU is solid. He went toe-to-toe with Scott Frost's team over the weekend. Very, very good game. Very well-coached teams on both sides. Uh, I think Chad Morris is a guy that you absolutely keep on your list. Brent Venables, the Clemson defensive coordinator. This is the guy that violates your rule, not Chad Morris. Thanks for correcting me on that one. Yes, off the list for a lot of reasons. Yeah, I don't think Venable's ready yet. That would be a bad hire for us. It would feel a lot like a Will Muschamp part two. You can't do that one. And then Joe Moorhead is really like a fantasy camp guy for me at Penn State. He's off my list. He's not realistic. He's a guy that I like as an athletic director like we talked about last week. I keep him in my my long-term narrative. Uh, just an interesting guy in general. Uh, he'd, he'd, he'd be a guy you'd love to have, of course, as your OC, but I don't think he's ready yet for this position, so he's off the list there. Now let's move to the probably to definitely not hiring list you created last week, Alan. Uh, the first name is Chip Kelly. You moving on with Chip or are you getting rid of him? I'm going to get rid of Chip. I I just don't think he's culturally a good fit. And this is maybe where personality would come in. That feels maybe contrarian because he's been so successful. But there's some things about him that make me nervous, especially when a guy leads with, I'm on the cutting edge and maybe you're not on the cutting edge anymore. Um. I could see just total disaster with Chip Kelly. I also could see him dominating. So unfortunately, I'm going to have to put him off my list. Chip Kelly is on my list and into the next round. Uh, some of the personality concerns are, in fact, there. Of course, this guy is an offensive innovator. In fact, if you like Scott Frost, you have to in some way, shape, or form like Chip Kelly because by Scott Frost's own admission, most of what he likes are based upon Chip Kelly's principles. Uh, so something there. Maybe Scott Frost is the better Nebraska version of Chip Kelly, which I think is actually potentially the case down the road, uh, especially given the character concerns that you might have with a guy like Chip and his desire to coach college football. But for me, if Chip is talking, which there are rumors last week that he in fact may be, I'm listening. Bobby Petrino. Way out. Way, way out. Yeah, he's not a consideration for me. John Gruden? I mean... (laughs) I, John Gruden is a coaching candidate for every job in America, so I guess he has to be one for UF. Yeah, he gets through my second level. I'd absolutely continue to pursue him if, if there was any interest. I would I would oblige. Mike Leach? No, Al. He's too volatile, too unpredictable. I mean, he's a fantastic coach, but just not for UF. Yeah, he'd be one of those guys like we talked about that would just be a lot of fun to watch. He'd be really entertaining. 
I don't think he's a real fit. It's not going to happen, but it's always fun to talk about him because he's Mike Leach. Les Miles is definitely a thumbs down for both of us. I'll just leave that one off. James Franklin, now the loser of two really brutal games in a row uh, there at Penn State. James Franklin for you? Yeah, I would definitely interview him and probably hire. I think he would, if I thought he was a realistic candidate, he'd be in the top five. Yeah, he moves on to me the next round. I just don't think he's a realistic candidate. I don't think he's going anywhere. I don't think he's going to come to Florida from Penn State. I don't buy any of that kind of talk that some Gator fans have. So he would be on my list in the second category. But we'll see if he makes the realistic top five list. All right, Lane Kiffin. I think for both of us, this is definitely a no. Although what he's doing this year, what he's doing this year at FAU is certainly very solid. There's no way, right, yes. that Lane Kiffin makes it through. No, second no. Round. Okay. I so, mean, it's... Like I said, I think I would quit being a Florida fan if if we hired Lane Kiffin. (laughs) If you took our suggestion, Google Joey Freshwater, that's a big part of this conversation. Yeah, I heard on the Steve Russell show on the way to work, which I never really listened to, but since I have a podcast, I try to like occasionally listen to other shows to see what they're talking about. And most of the time, that's just a very frustrating endeavor (laughs) because of what's being talked about. But I heard this caller lay out like a five-minute thesis for why Lynn Kiffin should be the next coach of the Gators, and I thought, man, I'm very glad that that person has no power in the Florida program. All right, so with that, we will now give you, drumroll please, Alan and I's top five coaching list of prospects for the Gators, and we're going to call this the realistic coaching list. So each Alan and I think that our list is in fact realistic, these guys are, in fact, attainable. So if you're going to write us letters or notes that say, hey, why didn't Allen include Bob Stoops more seriously in his list? It's because Allen doesn't think that's a realistic option. Each week as we go along, we'll update our list of top five based upon the realistic outcome. So if one of these guys says, hey, I'm out. I don't want to be the coach of Florida. Get me off the list. We will take him off the list. That's how we're going to do this. So we're not just going to keep a wish list of unrealistic guys. We're actually going to look at this as though we are the athletic director and we are going to begin to attempt to hire a coach for this program. Alan, I will start. We'll go back and forth here. My number five is Justin Fuente. Wow, lower than I thought he'd be for you. Uh, interesting. What, what puts him at five for you? Well, I have to. you have to hear number four, and then I can explain the contrasting difference. But for me right now, I feel like Fuente is part mixture. I'm not, I'm not sure how much he wants to come. And secondly, what he did at Memphis is excellent. I think what he's doing at Virginia Tech is also solid. But there are guys that I'm more excited to talk to in the interview process. And now keep in mind, Alan and I's list can only go so far because I can't sit in front of him and look at him and hear his answers. Now, a lot of that would shuffle this list up. So for me, I did it by an excitement level. What would I, as a fan, be excited about the most? And that's kind of how I ranked my list based upon these options. I love Fuente. I talk about him all the time. It's a coin flip between him and these other guys. But for now, for now, I'm going to leave Fuente at five. All right, my number five is a guy that you don't have on your list, and it's Willie Taggart. I'm intrigued by him. And this is a guy who I could quickly move off my list. But I think his recruiting prowess, the fact that he got USF to a really high level, and Oregon's looked okay. They've had a lot of injuries, especially at the quarterback position. But for some reason, he's still a guy, a name that moves the needle. And if you're going to value recruiting, if you were to say that's my number one um, coaching factor, then he's a guy you would probably want to hire. 
All right, my number four is Mike Gundy. And so you could say, okay, why not Fuente over Gundy, James? You love Fuente. He's an up-and-comer. All those things are true. I still think there's there's a real question to be asked about what Mike Gundy's ceiling is. Again, Mike Gundy is at Oklahoma State. He's at Oklahoma State. He's not at Oklahoma. He's not at Florida State. He's not at LSU. He's not at a primary power. He's not at Georgia. He's at Oklahoma State. And all he does is win 10 games almost every single year and compete in a ridiculously and absurdly exciting bedlam game against Oklahoma, a team that could very well be a playoff contender. I think the guy's solid. I think he's maybe what Fuente could become. Maybe Fuente eclipses him. But there's just a certain thing about Mike Gundy that I personally enjoy. And I think that's why he's going ahead of Fuente. Yeah, he does crazy things like grow at his mullet. Uh, I do think his offense is absolutely exemplary. I think Fuente's offense is less sophisticated. And that's probably why I'm essentially putting Gundy ahead of Fuente is I am starved for offense right now. And it's very possible that Fuente could be a better a better CEO than Gundy. Uh, but I need points. And I know that Gundy would get me that. So Gundy goes to number four. My number four for me is definitely an offensive projection kind of guy, and that's Mike Norvell from Memphis. Again, this is probably a little bit of a reach on him, but our situation calls for somebody who can put points on the board. And this is a guy who I'm not totally comfortable with, but I I think he's got a really, really high ceiling, and this would be definitely a ceiling higher. Um, I don't know if he's ready. And And if Mike Gundy, if I thought he was maybe a more realistic candidate, I probably would slot him in there. Um, I just don't know that we're going to get him out of Stillwater, really. So for me, for me, I'm a little lower on Gundy and a little higher on Norvell. Yeah, perfectly reasonable swap there. Number three, I've got your boy, the man, the myth, the legend, maybe the emerging legend, Matt Campbell of Iowa State. At some point in time, you say to yourself, Alan, this dude is not only winning at Iowa State, he's extremely competitive in every game that he plays against. He went up against the ultimate gatekeeper team in West Virginia, who's played a super fun schedule as we talk about each week. Goes down 20-3 to on the road, winds up making it a very close game, and they wind up falling to West Virginia. But what he is doing at Iowa State is historic, given their entire history of that program. Uh, They've never had an upward trajectory like this. That gets me noticing him. Absolutely, he's on my top five list. The problem with him is his astronomically high buyout. And that is, in fact, a problem, but we're the University of Florida. We're one of the best fundraising schools in the country. This has got to be something that I can overcome if he became the guy that I thought the program needed. Yeah, the buyout is really tough, and it's hard to convince people to pay that kind of buyout for a guy you're not totally sure is going to be a slam dunk. This is not a guy who's won a national championship somewhere else or – you know, done something really crazy yet. Now he could at Iowa State, you know, get them to a playoff or a division championship or something like that, which would be really a crazy thing. And, you know, the concerns with him other than his buyout, let's say he had no buyout. I still think he might be number three on my list, which he is, um, because of his lack of recruiting in the Florida area. And, you know, he's a, not a guy I think who stresses offense. He's more of a CEO, I, I think, at this point in his career, which is not a bad trait. Um, but I tend to be, again, this this might not be the greatest thing for us in this search, but we are desperate for offense, as you said. Uh, so that's what keeps him at three, even though I think he's a phenomenal coach. A few cautionary things. And 
maybe the fact that he has that $9 million buyout keeps him at number three. Yeah, and I echo those thoughts. And that's what you're hearing us talk about a lot. And I think all of you in your own coaching lists are feeling the same way. If there were a guy who had no downside risk, then it would just be a guy of one. And that'd be the guy you'd go after. And you don't need anyone else. But that's just not realistic. All of these guys have pros, cons, and trade-offs. And I think the skill of an athletic director is to evaluate which one of those guys' skill sets fits the program best. Uh, Number two for me is Chip Kelly. Now, Chip Kelly... I really don't know, as I've said all along, how serious he is about coaching college football. Because to me, it's very possible he is not. What I do know is this. I do not see an NFL job in Chip Kelly's future. I don't see one. Not right now. Not in the immediate future. That means Chip Kelly has to coach again unless he decides he doesn't want to coach again. And if he wants to coach again, he will have several jobs to choose from this season. By several, I mean every single one. So, Florida although he's not an East Coast guy, I think could be a very compelling job for him. If he's listening, I'm talking to him because I think in the worst realistic case scenario with Chip Kelly, you get him for three, maybe four years and he lights the world on fire and you score a million points and you're uber competitive and the brand of University of Florida is elevated to the level Oregon's brand was again, where it's top of mind, it's fantastic, it's it's front page news and that allows you to get the next guy into the program at the University of Florida to build off that momentum. So I like the worst case scenario of Chip Kelly, even if I don't like his personality and there are some risks about him doing things that are less than savory. I think that the reality is if you can have a face-to-face meeting with this man, you feel like his motivations are what they are, you could absorb a four-year transition period to maybe bridge yourself to another coach, but now the start Florida is shining brightly. Alan, who's your number two? Well, first, just let me comment on Chip Kelly. I took him off my list, but you made a very compelling case there. I mean, I think the worst case scenario is you end up in NCAA violations, which is something I do not want. That's part of the reason he's not on the list. But it would sure as heck be exciting. I can't say that I wouldn't be fired up. I would be scared, but I would be fired up. So that, that's the reason to hire him, maybe. Uh, number two on my list is your boy, Justin Fuente. Um, he might even be higher if I thought it was more likely that he would leave. I'm a big fan of his. Um, I like that this is now his second stop and he's done well, really well at both places. I think he's going to turn Virginia tech into a really powerhouse team. Now I don't think Virginia tech is ever going to be Florida or Texas or USC. Um, And so that's the reason that you might get him because he could never really hit that, that high, high, high ceiling. Um, But I think he's going to be, an incredible college coach for the next 15 to 20 years. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. It's a guy we talk about and love all the time. And I think a lot of me emotionally feels like he's just, he took that job for a reason. Doesn't strike me as a guy that would leave after year two, but does strike me as a guy, Alan, that would leave, as you mentioned it, after several seasons of success, but butting your head up against that, that glass ceiling that he can't get through because he's stuck at a program that has to have a perfect scenario to win a national title, maybe that's when he shops around. And maybe I'm wrong on that. He just doesn't feel like a guy that's leaving Vautech after year two. But keep your eye on that one. All right, number number one for me, and this is obvious at this point in time if I haven't named him yet, is going to be Scott Frost. Scott Frost does things week after week after week that get you more excited about him. Last week was an interesting week for the coaching search market. 
If you watched a lot of these coaches, a lot of them lost. And I don't think you can put stock in your head coach based upon whether he won or lost last week, but it so happened. And now you've got a guy in Scott Frost who has beaten DJ Durkin, who's on this list. He's beaten Mike Norvell, who's on a lot of people's list. Alan, he's on yours. He has beaten Chad Morris, who's a guy that both of us screened through to the next round. And he has turned UCF from a team that was scoring 28 points a game, ranked about 100th two years ago, to number one in the vast majority of offensive categories. He is doing that with a quarterback who is 5'11". He is doing that with players that are not legitimately amazing. Uh, and he is getting the entire team to play. And he goes on the road against SMU when it is easily the most distraction-filled week of Scott Frost's entire life. His wife is pregnant, was about to deliver a baby. He's being rumored every single day about the Florida job. He's going up against a guy in Chad Morris who you know wants to make a name for himself on the road. And all he does is go in there and win that football game. At this point in time, yes, it's only two years. I don't know what else you can say about Scott Frost. His coaching tree is absolutely incredible. He played under Bill Walsh in the NFL. If you follow football at all, Bill Walsh is a father, a godfather, the grandmaster, the legend of offense in so many ways. So many of Bill Walsh's principles remain in the NFL and college today. He has been with just a who's who of coaches throughout his time. He's been under Chip Kelly at Oregon. He is building a program here in Florida. He already has ties to the state of Florida. His name is emerging. There are so many things here to like that it is a risk that is absolutely worth taking. And oh, by the way, there's not an astronomical buyout or hurdle that is preventing him from coming to the University of Florida. It's essentially going to be his choice as to whether or not he wants to do this. So for those those reasons, and then some more, of course, Scott Frost is my number one guy. Yeah, agreed. I mean, he's by far and away the number one person on my list. Checks all of those boxes, offensive philosophy, and they are scoring like crazy. You're right. I was uber impressed with him this week. Even watching the beginning of that SMU game, I mean, they gave up a 95-yard touchdown like right at the beginning of the game. It, I was wondering if they were going to be able to pull that out, and it would have been totally reasonable for them to lose that game, and they didn't. Not that you want to put all your stock in that one week by any means, as you said, but very impressive. Offensive philosophy, good personality, great great coaching tree, connections. You know, I don't know if he's an elite recruiter, but he's he definitely has way more connections than a lot of these guys on the list. I think it's a no-brainer at this point. And James, you know, if you look at both of our lists – it's kind of funny if we think Justin Fuente maybe don't maybe doesn't leave Virginia Tech. Taggart on my list, not on your list. Who knows if we'd leave Oregon? Campbell, huge buyout. I don't know if Gundy and Chip Kelly are coming. Who would realistically be sixth on your list? Like if all let's say Frost says no or says he wants to go to Nebraska, where he played college football, who would and all those other guys say no, which is a very real possibility. Who's number six on your list? Well, and I think that's why a guy like Mike Norvell is getting so much attention at this point in time. But I'm going to tell you, and I need to do more research on this, I I find myself hopping on the Chad Morris train. I really do. He's hmm. got ties to the South. What he's doing at SMU is exemplary. Uh, I think that it's a much harder job than what Mike Norvell has taking over for an, an incredible coach in Fuente at Memphis. Those two guys could be a coin yeah. flip. I'd have to interview them, and that's why I'm naming both of them. But those would be the two guys for me that emerged right to the top of my mind and say, if I can't get my five, 
those two are probably where I'm going to next. And I'm going to have to really figure out which one I want more and why. Because, of course, you can make reasons pro and con for either one of them. But uh, I think that both of them check a lot of boxes that Florida fans would want. They're both offensive-minded. You know, obviously, Norvell is 8-1 this year with his only loss being to Frost. And, you know, Chad Morris just gave Frost all he could handle in that game. He's got SMU turned around, and he's from the South. So I think that Norvell's bigger question mark would be recruiting. Chad Morris is known as a good recruiter. So, you know, probably a coin flip, guys, between those two, depending on how I thought they sort of handled their vision for the job. How about you? Yeah, I... It's tough. I don't know. I mean, because I have some guys on here like Norvell. I've already got him on the list. I think he's basically the floor for me. I mean, if Frost for some reason doesn't want to come, and you know, Chad Morris, if that AM job comes open, that would be a pretty obvious guy for them to look really closely at. He'd just be moving up in the state of Texas, kind of like Frost with us. And I think the gap right now between Norvell and Frost for me is pretty large. So I think you have to almost make Scott Frost an offer he can't refuse because the gap between him and the next guy I'm most excited about on the list is pretty large. If those guys like Gundy, Fuente, Campbell are are not attainable. So Scott Frost might be about to get paid. We'll see. As soon as you said you have to make him an offer they can't refuse, I just hear the Godfather music playing in the back of my headphones. Yeah. <laughs> it's just slowly filtering in. We need Marlon Brando to come in here and say, listen, Scott, you are coming to the University of Florida, and here's what I'm going to lay out. But you're right. You're right. I think if you've learned anything from Alan and I's thought process in this discussion is that we are where a lot of other people are, and that's that Scott Frost is by far and away the most compelling candidate. Now, keep in mind, this does not mean that he's guaranteed to dominate wherever he goes next. We've talked yeah. about this a lot, but it means he's worth the risk. He's worth investing in. And given what you can see, he makes you the most excited about what you're investing in. And I think that's important. All right, Alan, we're going to dive more into this tactically when this happens. Obviously, in, in the December episode or whenever our coach gets hired, we will really get into this. But as a philosophical question, would you expect that any coaches would be retained from our current staff? That's a good question. I, I think there's some guys who have contracts going into next year that would make some sense. Um, but I think the real reason you would keep guys is because you think they're plus recruiters. So a guy like Chris Rumpf, who's the defensive line coach, you know, I guess was the DC for this for the rest of the season, seems to do well recruiting. Um, there's a guy who we pegged as a pretty big hire on the offensive side, Jawan Sider, who's basically – yeah, he's our running backs coach, I believe. Um, but that's that's almost doesn't even matter what position coach you give him. He's there to recruit. And yeah, I think he's he's a guy you'd have to look at because he came in with a pretty decent amount of fan, fanfare. There's probably other guys down the line, Tim Skipper, Corey Bell. I think even Randy Shannon would be a guy you would think about retaining just to provide some stability unless you really love your defensive coordinator. Um that you have a guy that you would really like to bring in. Um, but yeah, those are the guys that first names come to mind. I don't know though. Coaches typically come in and clean house, but those would be the guys I think would probably get the first looks. Yeah. I think it's, it's potentially likely depending on who gets hired that one or two of those recruiters you mentioned, Alan stay, if for no other reason than to maintain what should be a very solid recruiting class, 
Right. And if you think to yourself as the new coach, okay, if I come in and I bring all of my own coaches, which is going to take me at least a month to hire those guys, that puts me in the middle to the end of January. I don't have a full staff named. A lot of these recruits can panic and leave. If I maintain maybe one guy on offense, one guy on defense, they're position coaches, and that allows me to keep this entire class, what are the dividends that pays out over the next couple of years? And everyone else is my own staff, right? I think that's a very, very real consideration that the next coach will go through. And it will all depend upon what you just said, Alan, how strongly they feel about their own coaching tree and who they think can maintain that class. And really, truthfully, how good of a CEO they are. A wise CEO thinks beyond his own hubris and understands resource management. And part of that is the resources that have been potentially lined up to come to the school. That's a large part of what that coach will plan to do. And you better believe that Strickland will be asking that question in the interview as soon as that time comes, because that is going to be important. And that's why so many resources are being employed right now into maintaining this recruiting class. Now that brings us to another topic here, Alan. Is UF still a top 10 job? Because we're talking a lot about it like it is. But the reality is, we have not been very good for quite some time. Our national profile, you could argue, is much lower now than it once was. Is this still a job that these coaches we're naming even get excited about? I think so. And if you're a, a coach who's looking at where could you go and be successful We have everything around you that would lend you all the resources that you would need to not just compete, but to compete for national championships. I think Florida checks all those boxes. Huge stadium, huge campus support, a great athletic administration. And then maybe most importantly, access to the biggest recruiting hotbed in America. So in that sense, I think it is still a top 10 job. And, you know, I haven't ranked them all. I haven't listed them all out. But I would say it's probably closer to a top five job than a top 10 job. It's the only SEC school in the state of Florida, obviously. uh, And that carries some heft to it as well. I think so. Um, I'd be hard-pressed to name 10 other jobs that would be better than UF. And I'd probably be hard-pressed to name five other jobs that would be better. Yeah, I'm with you all the way. It is absolutely a top 10 job. And if you are a head coach, the reason it is a top 10 job is not only the booster support and the athletic department revenue, but it's what you mentioned, Alan. You are sitting literally on top of a gold mine. All you have to do is put the pan into the ground, pull it out, and you've got gold every single time. The natural resources, so to speak, that you have in the state are unbelievable. And if you want to be a college football coach, aka investor, in college football athletes, you want to be doing it in a state where there's tons and tons of talent to choose from. That's exactly where you would go. And this is exactly the place to be. And so you can argue Texas and USC and LSU and Georgia and other states. And at some point in time, you really can't pick a number one. I think like you mentioned, Alan, there's tiers. And Florida is absolutely in the top tier. I don't think there is another tier above Florida's tier. I think any coach knows that. And I do not think that us firing McIlwain and Muschamp close hinders another coach at all. I think it's exactly what Urban Meyer said it was. This is the job where you can win national championships. And if you can't get excited about that, why are you in the profession? And I strongly believe that University of Florida is only ever a new coach and two years away from being immediately national relevant, regardless of the circumstances. 
That's what an elite coach can do at a program like UF. So I absolutely think this is the case. Now, Andy Staples says Florida's facilities, Alan, are in disarray. Our facilities are terrible. We're way behind the times. We know that we had an athletic director in Jeremy Foley who said that you don't need these facilities. We've won before. It's, it's, is this a problem? Is this something a guy like Scott Frost looks at and says, you know what? Florida doesn't have the facilities. I'm not sure if there a has been. Do you see that being an issue coupled with the, the fan pressure that some Gator fans seem to think we're known for? Let me start with the fan pressure thing. I, it's got to be a difficulty. I mean, it's certainly a factor. But if you're going to be at a top 10 job, you're going to have that kind of you know, fan pressure. And maybe it's a little higher at Florida than it is in some of these places. But you could read these Ohio State message boards after the game last night, and they were ready to fire Urban Meyer. So that's going to be anywhere you go in the top 10 kind of jobs list. I think our program, our facilities were a detriment to our program. I obviously didn't keep Urban Meyer from winning championships and Steve Spurrier. But in this arms race, I'm not that you have to have the best, but I don't think you can be way far behind. And we are currently upgrading all that stuff. We built the indoor practice, practice facility. We built the new kind of student athlete life center. They'll probably in the next few years, renovate the football facility and i think they're they're planning on building a standalone one we'll see if that continues so i don't think this is going to be a problem into the future if you're a coach like scott frost you're looking around you're like well if it's in slight as slight disadvantage it's not going to be that way um and the the other advantages with this job are just too great to you know let something like facilities get in the way yeah i'm with you there and we have a ton of money and that's part of the question that was asked is how are we so far behind and i think that came down to your leadership jeremy foley just did not believe in spending money on facilities i think it was a part of pride it was a personal pride thing for him uh you know i'd love to have him on the show one day he's a personal friend of mine we could ask him that question and he'll tell us in candid you know candid vigor that's probably still a year or two away at this point in time but we don't know the specific answer to that question without just speculating, but that's been the speculation. And I think the pressure to win Allen, exactly what you said, that, that to me is, is sort of nonsensical. If you want to be the best at whatever it is you're doing, you better be willing to embrace the pressure of having to do that on the toughest stage. I don't care what career you are in. Advanced success and notoriety does not come without significantly increased pressure. So if a guy doesn't want that, then I can assure you that he will not be successful as a head football coach of an elite institution. So that kind of eliminates him right away. So I don't think any of these coaches are particularly concerned with what the fans think about the program. They understand that if they win, they'll be loved. And if they lose, they'll be disliked. That's part of being a football coach with all the glitz, glory, and glamour that comes with it. All right. So we both think we're a top 10 job. Florida right now is like 70th in advanced metrics as a program. Some other teams that are not played some notable games last weekend. I'll walk us through them. Let's start with a crazy one in Penn State on the road at Michigan State. A three and a half hour lightning weather delay in Michigan in November. I cannot imagine that happens often. Michigan State hangs on to upset Penn State 27-24. Your thoughts on that one? Yeah, that was an impressive win for Michigan State. They are... <laughs> They're so tough. It feels like the worse the weather and the worse situation, the better they are. Uh, D'Antonio continues to prove that 
he's a, he's a guy who knows how to win games. This is a really disappointing loss for Penn State, especially considering what happened in the Ohio State game. I don't know. Michigan State might actually win the Big Ten. That's crazy considering where they were last year. Yeah, what a difference two weeks can make, and that's why the college football season is so fun. I think as a Florida fan, it's easy to feel like removed from this stuff now because your team is out of it. But that's why college football is so awesome, is everyone starts projecting Penn State in the final, and that's what it's going to be like. I picked him as my playoff team. But just let the games play out and, and enjoy what goes on week to week in college football. What a great game and a great ending and a special season going on for Michigan State right now. And uh, Mike D'Antoni continues to impress. You know, not a guy that's on any Florida coaching list, but that's a guy that is an excellent football coach. Not in the top tier, but a guy that's capable of pulling off some really nice seasons and beating some really quality opponents. South Carolina went on the road to Georgia, played a competitive game, dominated for a lot of it, but the score was close. Georgia winds up winning 24-10. to yeah, and obviously we're going to talk a lot about South Carolina. Very workmanlike win for Georgia. I mean, I don't know what I was expecting out of this game, but, I mean, South Carolina covered like we thought they would. Yeah, I thought that it was going to be close. Uh, we thought that it wouldn't be as big as a 23.5-point spread. I think Georgia looked a little bit more down-to-earth in this game. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about, like you mentioned, South Carolina, and spoiler alert, their defense is actually not that good this year. Uh, so... I'm not saying Georgia like lost its luster, but I definitely think this game was one Georgia came into. They'd gotten a massive Florida monkey off their back. They'd gotten Florida's coach fired. They probably felt really good about themselves. Took care of business here. Good kind of trappish win for Georgia. We mentioned this was an important one for them to kind of come out and look good in. They were they were meh, uh, but a lot of season left for them. So keep an eye on that one. Iowa State, Matt Campbell's Iowa State against my Will Greer's West Virginia. West Virginia wins 20 to 16. Very, very good well-contested game. Greer had a white-hot first half, and they pretty much shut him down in the second half. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, I mean, Morgantown's a really tough place to go in and win, especially traveling that far in that kind of crazy environment. Um, West Virginia, they're such a fun team to watch every week, whether they win or lose. So um, that's why we keep talking about them every week, I guess. Ohio State on the road against Iowa, a game that both of us said that spread seemed manic last week. You don't just walk into Iowa and come out unscathed. And boy, did they not. 55-24, Iowa beat them like a drum. Like a drum, Alan. First question, why is it so hard to win in Iowa? I don't know. Maybe you have to look up at all those kids in the hospital and wave to them and it makes you sad. Um, which is a fantastic tradition, by the way. Didn't want to make fun of that, really. But I don't know. Iowa... This is a crazy result. Not the fact that they won. You know, they, they had a big win there last year against Michigan. 55 points. I, this is inexplicable. I, I could see Ohio State fans being frustrated by this. I mean, man, I, I don't know. I watched a good amount of this game. Ohio State didn't look like they knew what they were doing at any point. Like they like they'd never watched a second of Iowa's game film. Because <laughs> they're not doing too many different things. They did run that crazy um, fake field goal or fake punt or something where they threw it to the holder, which is awesome if you haven't seen it. But other than that, I don't I don't know what they were expecting coming into this game. Yeah, that's a bad result for Ohio State. And it. I just feel like they could have got, not sort of, they did get very lucky against Penn State last week. They made their own luck in that one, but they probably should have lost it. And they probably should have lost two in a row. I still have long lingering questions over JT Barrett. 
And I think this performance against Iowa sort of illustrated some of those. But the defense was the major story here. And you're right about that, Alan. I'm not sure how that happens. Iowa's not known for scoring 55. A lot of reason for frustration in Columbus this week. Oklahoma, Oklahoma State. You mentioned it was the game you wanted to most watch last week. Bedlam totally ensued. There were like 65 points scored in the first, I don't know, 17 or 18 minutes of this game, Alan. It was insane. And Oklahoma survives this one to beat Oklahoma State. I stayed up till 3.30 in the morning to watch the end of this game. It was riveting. I loved it. I don't know if either of these teams are going to make the playoff because I don't know if they survive. But what a fun matchup. Bedlam, fantastic. I mean, it's such a good game. LSU 10, Bama 24. Does this at all affect your perception of Alabama as a program and a national champion this year? Or business as usual? This game's typically close. I don't think this is how Bama wanted to win this game. They obviously didn't cover. LSU does have athletes, and that's you know maybe part of matching up with Alabama is just athlete to athlete. But yeah, probably not the result they wanted from this game. Yeah, my recurring commentary here is how Alabama chooses to employ this floor strategy using Jalen Hurts. It limits them because this passing is so very limited. And without Lane Kiffin orchestrating the strings of that offense they've definitely taken a step back it's something to watch as they head into the most important games of the season virginia tech on the road against miami miami wins 28 10 probably their biggest win to date this season a convincing win a commanding win over justin fuente a guy that we've talked a lot about already your thoughts on that one yeah big win for miami they hadn't had a chance to prove themselves because their schedule's been a little light especially with florida state not having the best of seasons to put it lightly so a huge win for them. They're now in the driver's seat with Notre Dame coming to town this weekend. All right, let's uh, jump over to the SEC. Some interesting results here. Some not interesting results either. UMass 23, Mississippi State 34. UMass seemingly giving everybody trouble this season. Yeah, uh, just a, another reason why I don't want Dan Mullen. And I'm, it's not his fault, but that game was close for a while. Yeah, And it's just... It's not comforting. I don't know. What, what would UCF do if they played UMass right now? I happen to think they win by more. That could be wrong. It could also be short-sighted, but just a, just a feeling as to why Dan is not on my list. Indeed. All right, Auburn 42, Texas A&M 27. Maybe this spells the end of the Kevin Sumlin era. Yeah, it seems to be the case. It seems like they're ready to move on for him. They've committed a tremendous amount of money to the facilities at A&M. They're ready to win. They're ready to win now, and it's going to cost them seemingly a lot of money to jump into this coaching race now with his buyout. And on top of that, there could be six programs in the SEC that fire their coaches. So it's going to be a race, an arms race to get new coaches. Yeah, not a great time to fire a coach. Western Kentucky 17, Vandy 31. Not much to see here, I guess. Yeah, who cares is maybe the response. But I guess any win for the SEC least is a good win. All right, maybe more talent in Ole Miss than you would have thought or if you were wondering about that, they win 37 against the hapless, blundering Kentucky Wildcats. So 37-34. Kentucky at 6-3. At and three, And I guess if you're a delusional Kentucky fan, you could easily say that you should be 8-1. and one, And that wouldn't necessarily be invalid. However, most of your games are close games against teams that if you were really getting better, you should be beating more convincingly. Like Ole Miss, who is like weird they're even playing football this year. It feels like they're just sort of a team that's going through the motions because you know disaster struck. But good win for them. Good win for them on the road against Kentucky. Yeah. Coastal Carolina, this is 1-8 and eight 
one of the worst teams in football, Coastal Carolina, 38, Arkansas, 39. Arkansas has to come from behind to win this game. Inexplicable. Like, this is another result that you just cannot explain. There's no logic behind it. It doesn't make sense. If the players didn't have coaches, you could assume that they would be doing just fine on their own against Coastal Carolina. But as it stands with coaches and practice, they barely win this game. Southern Miss 10, Tennessee 24. I mean, we've talked about, we fired Butch Jones on this podcast every week. And I, I know you mentioned this another time, but are Tennessee fans getting nervous that he might stick around by winning out the rest of these games? I would be. I'd be super nervous. I mean, it's crazy that he is still there. Like, what are you doing if you're the athletic director at Tennessee? I mean, what? I I honestly don't get it. I think it's very old school and outdated to keep a coach until the end of the season arbitrarily. And I think what it does is what you're seeing at Tennessee is it creates an incredibly disgruntled fan base, at least at Florida. We're all sort of pacified. We can get annihilated by Missouri and life still feels kind of rosy because we've solved the problem. But with Tennessee just arbitrarily waiting, I don't know what that accomplishes. I, I don't think it accomplishes really anything, but hey, I'm glad I'm not a Tennessee fan. Let's now focus our attention on the upcoming game. We're playing against Will Muschamp's South Carolina Gamecocks. This game has very little appeal, I'm sure, to most of you. It has very little appeal to Alan and I, but... It is a game that is happening this Saturday, and thus we will get you primed for it, for the storylines that do exist. Alan, give us the the highlight-level overview of South Carolina. Well, this will be pretty familiar for Florida fans here. Um, USC is 6-3, and three, kind of a mediocre 6-3, and three, but they are 7.5-point favorites against our Florida Gators. This is, of course, Will Muschamp's second year. They're coming off a loss to Georgia, obviously, but they have won the three of their last four. You'll recognize some of these names here. Offensive coordinator, Kurt Roper, along with a guy named Brian McClendon. Uh, not really impressive in most categories um, towards the bottom in yards. You know, they're pretty split amongst their run and pass, 52%, 47% run. Uh, you also recognize the defensive coordinator, Traveris Robinson. And the defense, not as great as you'd expect from a Will Muschamp defense. Kind of middle of the road, not great pass defense. However, they are the best in the country in turnover margin. Probably the reason they're winning most of these games. Some injuries for the Gators. Brett Heggie, unfortunately, out for the season. One of our better offensive linemen. So that brings the total up to quite a few players. James, do we have an injury problem at UF? Is this a reoccurring issue for us? And if so, is, this, is the training subpar? What do you think about this? You know, it certainly feels that way at this point in time. And if you follow strength training at all, there's a rather legendary guy at Stanford who does things differently. He focuses on posture and muscle imbalances with regard without regard to just straight mass and strength lifting. So guys that come from this school are Richard Sherman and a bunch of other guys in the NFL now that are sort of disciples of this strength trainer. He's still on the front edge of that. Most other programs employ many of the same techniques. Uh, there was a, 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 a few seasons past when Will Muschamp had a guy named Jeff Dillman on the staff, and he was an Olympic lifting kind of strength coach. And a lot of the UF players took a lot of non-contact injuries that year. And I know I actually mentioned this uh, at the time. I think I even I posted yeah. on social media about it. I know I talked a lot about it as that being a smoking gun for, for injuries that should not be happening. 
it doesn't seem like this particular season or from what I've been hearing, that's the case now. In fact, we actually went away from that for those reasons. It's potentially just a very unlucky situation in this season. But I will have to say it does really feel like we are afflicted by these maybe more so than other schools are on a consistent basis over the past five or six years. Uh, We have been quite, quite unlucky with that. And I don't think now the training is an issue like it once was, but I also don't think we're addressing it maybe like front of the line schools are like Stanford. And it's possible now people are being held out because it's not so vital. Some of these guys on the defensive line possibly. I mean, football is a game of injuries. It will happen. Um, And sometimes you do get a rash of them, but I, we haven't been totally, you know, bit by the injury bug. The suspensions definitely don't help in this category. That's probably partly in people's mind when they think about having lost so many players. And there'll be something like Luke Del Rio, a broken collarbone. There's nothing you can do to train against that. So stuff just happens. Um, let's look at the film study for this week. James, did you do any? I did not. And this wasn't out of laziness or sheer desire not to do any, but because I think in reality – And certainly feel free to tweet at us or write me a message on Patreon or Facebook if this is not the case. But it it seems like most of us, you, me, Alan, you the listeners, the narrative is that really what we're doing in the upcoming games doesn't mean nearly as much as what's going on in the coaching search world. And so while I could tell you exactly what South Carolina runs and what we plan on running, I'm not sure that holds as much interest. In fact, you're probably more likely to watch the games that the potential coaches we are looking at are playing than even our own game intently. So for that, we'll save the time on that. And instead, what I want to do is I want to kind of talk about then, if we're not watching these games at a tactical and strategic level like we were early on in the season, like we will be next year, what are we looking for with regards to on-the-field benchmarks that we're hoping happen in these last three games? Yeah, that's a challenge to figure out what yeah what is beneficial for this team hopefully what you would want is player development. We do have a lot of young guys out there and you would like to see them improve and get playing time. Um, I don't know. There's, there's not a ton that you can take away. You, you would like to see um, some kind of competence on offense. And that would show you that not only is the coaching staff adjusting, but that the players are learning and growing. I don't think we're going to see the coaching staff adjust too much, but Reps for these young guys are helpful, especially the guys who are going to be the future of your program. Um, you don't want to burn any red shirts, obviously, or anything like that. But uh, I would—I know that I would like to see player development, even if it's just getting out there in the field in some good situations. Yeah, at this point in time, I think that the off-the-field benchmarks will continue to be important to monitor. And one of those is what you saw David Reese say or hear David Reese say in those post-game quotes, which talked about leadership, connecting the dots between this regime and the next regime, what it means to be a Florida football player, what it means to wear that jersey. Those are off-the-field benchmarks I want to see continue. I take that as a positive that David Reese is not going to allow this team to fold its tent and sort of just go through the motions. That's step one. Step two, on the field, like you mentioned, Alan, Experience does matter, even if it's in these games that don't matter. So if you get a chance for all of the future guys to continue to play and get reps, even if the system changes entirely next year, it will be very valuable to them. So what do I want to see? I want to see new guys getting a chance to excel, be held accountable, uh, and learn whether they're making mistakes or making good plays. Those are some on-the-field benchmarks 
that I would look to see. Winning and losing is probably less important at this point. Of course, in the dream scenario, if you wanted to salvage the season, you'd make it to a bowl game. And that's not because you care about the bowl game, but it's because you get all of those additional practices. And that's something that we've covered on this program before. Uh, in the very beginning in season one was this this concept of getting these bowl game practices and how important it is to have them, even if it's not the staff that's going to remain. It just gives these kids an additional lot of practices to work against each other and to just essentially improve their skill sets. And you have to keep in mind, these are in fact 18 to 22 year olds that are learning still very much so this game of football. And so that's the dream. That is not going to happen. We are not going to get those practices. We are not going to make a bowl game. So I think you're more likely looking for individual traits and and benchmarks at this point in time with leadership. Emerging leadership is what I'm going to cite as my most important thing. So for this week's film study, as opposed to knowing how South Carolina is going to attack us and how we're going to attack them, focus on how this team responds to David Reese's leadership. Pay particular attention to David Reese's demeanor during the game and look at the interactions on the sideline between the players uh, and, and the offense and the defense and each other. And I think you're going to want to see continuing signs of, of cohesion as opposed to disruption. And that's going to be an important narrative as we transition from this regime to the next one. And so with that, Alan, although we didn't do film study, we can still talk keys to victory. What are your keys to victory if the Gators were to pull out an upset win on the road against South Carolina? Man, it feels weird to talk about the Gators having an uphill battle against a Will Muschamp-led South Carolina team. Um, at the beginning of the year, this looked like a very winnable game. And then as it's tilted, obviously this looks quite difficult. Now, the talent gap is not large. Obviously, I think it would even still favor the Gators. This South Carolina team is probably not going to beat itself. And so just playing the conservative style that we've been playing is, is not going to do very much for us. So I would say be aggressive, throw the ball downfield, let Ma- let Malik Zaire run. What are you saving him for? Um, there's no kind of bowl game or playoff or big game ahead that you would want to keep him healthy for. Um, and so empty out the playbook, whatever. <laughs> That's a very loose key for victory. And then on defense, does our young secondary get burnt again? We talk, we're going to talk about this every week. Um, the South Carolina offense is not dynamic, but they do have a quarterback who can throw the ball um, and move the ball down the field. So will we see our young corners respond? I'm hopeful that they're going to come back and have a much better game. This is a game that we could very easily win. South Carolina barely beat Vanderbilt a couple weeks ago. They did play a nice hang in their game against Georgia. But I just... I just feel like the key to the victory would be caring. If the coaching (laughs) staff is somehow able to get this team to care, we'd have a chance to win. And then from there, all the same problems you and I talk about every single week, Allen would rear their head. We have the worst offensive coordinator that I personally have laid my eyes on in Doug Nussmeyer. He will continue to prevent us from scoring points. And therefore, it's going to be really difficult to win this game without a bunch of fluke scenarios. So the key to the victory would be a fluke scenario we'd have to do stuff we've never done before like return a punt block a kick uh you know do anything in special teams that resembles competence or have a michigan game plan where we have a couple of pick sixes we manufacture points and do a few other things the sick reality is you could create some simple plays to run with malik zaire that would be very effective and and run them based upon how many guys are in the box versus what kind of coverage they're in 
But that's not happening. So I'm just going to go with desire, sheer desire and will to win could be a key to this one. And I can assure you that South Carolina has a whole lot more of that than we do. So I will mainly be watching to see what the attitude of this team looks like coming off of a dumpster fire loss to Missouri. All right, prediction time. James, do the Gators have a shot? What are you predicting? I am predicting yet another loss. I would like to apologize to everyone for my preseason predictions of the Gators somehow winning all of these games because they were quote-unquote coin flips because I was wrong. <laughs> I thought we'd have a large ceiling to floor disparity, but I was wrong. These games are no longer coin flips. They feel like we're climbing Mount Everest to beat South freaking Carolina, which is just ridiculous. So whatever. I'm going to say South Carolina wins this game. It's hard to see any other way. Probably like 27-13, and they cover the spread because we're just a beaten, defeated, injured team, and I don't see it getting any better. So South Carolina 2017, Florida 13. It's hard not to predict this team giving up around 30 points. Um, I'm going to go something very similar. I'm going to say 27-17 South Carolina. Well, we're locked into the same wavelength here, Alan. So another depressing weekend for the Gator football team. But maybe winter, Alan, is coming. But what's on tap for this weekend is an excellent slate of games. Alan, let's walk through them. Washington, 6.5 favorites on the road against Stanford. I like Washington in this game. I'm waiting for them to really show what they're capable of. Stanford's a tough team, but Washington has a ton more to play for. Yeah, this is a game that Washington should win. The spread is interesting, though. I think Stanford could keep this game very close, so I'm tempted to take Stanford and the points, and I will. Michigan State on the road against Ohio State. Ohio State favored by 15, Allen. Again, that feels insane. Michigan State seems to play every game really close. I'm forced to take Michigan State in the points here. Yeah, I'm definitely taking Michigan State in the points, and I'm tempted to take them as an outright winner, uh, especially given what they just did against Penn State. I, I, I'm not figuring out the lines makers here, the odds makers on Ohio State. Oklahoma State minus 6.5 points on the road against Iowa State. Oof. I'm going to take Iowa State here because this is such an emotional letdown game for Oklahoma State. Bedlam has got to take a little bit out of them. So I'll take Iowa State in the points. I like Iowa State to outright win this game. If Campbell is as good as I think he is, the way that he stopped a Will Greer offense the week before, which is very similar to what Oklahoma State runs, gives them extra preparation. They had an excellent second half. I think uh, Iowa State is feeling good about itself coming off that loss. And just like you said, I think Oklahoma State is not. So I'm taking Iowa State outright on that one. Georgia, minus two and a half on the road against Auburn. By far, by far, the most important game Kirby Smart's going to play this year. The biggest win has been Notre Dame, but this one, this one's going to be the most important game Kirby's played. SEC game on the road. This is a proving ground game for him. What do you like here? I'm fascinated by this game. You know, when Georgia feels like they're just going to click off all the games in their schedule by the middle of the year, but this Auburn game, the fact that it's in Jordan-Hare, this, I mean, if you talk to Auburn's fans, they hate this Georgia game because weird stuff happens. But I'm going to go out on the limb here and take Auburn. Interesting. I like Georgia in this one. I feel like, as we chronicled on, on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, Georgia's excellent at stopping the run, short passes, short play design. That's what Auburn wants to do. It's a run-based spread offense, and if they can't get that going, I don't see how Auburn scores enough points to win this one. So I'm going to take Georgia on the road. Florida State 
versus Clemson. Clemson favored by 17. I put this in the docket because I've got a funny feeling Florida State might be competitive in this one. Your thoughts? They might be, but give me give me Clemson and all those and I'll even give away all those points. I mean, I don't know that Florida State's offensive line can even come close to standing up against this Clemson defensive line. I, I worry for the safety of Florida State's quarterback in this game. Yeah, they can't, but I'm going to take Florida State with those 17 points. I think that's – I just have a funny feeling this one's going to wind up right. tighter than that. But I, I, I absolutely agree with you that Florida State might be putting in the water boy and or like a defensive lineman just to survive, survive the barrage of Clemson's D-line in this one. Alabama only a 14-point favorite against Mississippi State. That line strikes me as odd. Your thoughts on that one? You know, Mississippi State is such a boom or bust team. Feels like they're going to keep this really close or get blown out. I'm going to pick the blowout side and take Bama here. Yeah, me too. Mississippi State can't pass the football at all. They're entirely one-dimensional, and Bama is going to stop them from running the ball. This feels like a Bama win by like 30. And in fact, I'm pretty confident if the line stays that way, I'll place a wager of sorts to back up my own talk. Uh, Notre Dame... Minus three and a half on the road against Miami. This is the most compelling game of the weekend for me. I cannot wait to watch this game. College football is excellent when both Notre Dame and Miami are good. Miami is not the swagger-filled, awesome team to watch that they were of yesteryear at this point. But this is fun for college football to have a relevant Notre Dame-Miami game. It is. It really is. You got the old Catholics versus convicts. Ray to roll. Love those shirts. You know, if this was a week ago... Prior to the Virginia Tech win, I would definitely have taken Notre Dame. I don't have a great feel for this. Um, Notre Dame, you know, can they win a big road game? You know, James, I'm going to have to take Notre Dame here. I'm taking Notre Dame. Notre Dame is sky high on the momentum meter. And if they come crashing back down to earth, I will come crashing back down with them. But I think they have reached a level Miami has not hit yet. And if Miami does hit that level, I will be very impressed. So I'm going Notre Dame covering that three and a half point spread. Lastly, TCU, uh, top 10 matchup here versus Oklahoma. Oklahoma has seven points at home as the favorite. What do you like going on here? Again, a very interesting game. What a what an excellent slate of games here. You know, this is probably going to knock one of these teams out of the playoff. So a lot at stake here. I'm going to go ahead and take Oklahoma. I think TCU is going to have trouble matching Oklahoma's output here. Yeah, this one seems like a a win that Oklahoma has to have and that TCU maybe does not have the firepower for. But this is also a game that Gary Patterson finds ways to win. So I'm conflicted with this one. I feel like this this should be close given what TCU has done this season. So I'm going to take TCU and the points, but I feel like it may be more than that in Oklahoma's favor if things go right. But Oklahoma doesn't really play defense, so it's almost impossible to gauge what they're going to do in a big game. All right, we've talked a lot about the multiple potential job openings coming up this year. So... I thought it'd be a fun little game to rank them in terms of their desirability. If you're a coach and you're looking to move up in the world, which of these is most attractive to you? And now, again, some of these are open, like Florida, and others we expect to be open. So we got eight jobs here. And, James, I want you to rank them in order from least desirable to most desirable. 
and this is in alphabetical order somewhat, I guess, depending on how we're listening to them, but Arkansas, Florida, Nebraska, Ole Miss, Oregon State, Tennessee, Texas A&M, and UCLA. Well, that is in alphabetical order unless my spelling has gotten mixed up. Well, so. it's like you know, it's, all these are universities. It's the University of Florida. You could have started <laughs> that with a U as well. You could have. You could have. I like it. Uh, all right. Least desirable first. I'm going to go with Oregon State as my least desirable job. And I'm not going to rank all of mine. I want. I was going to say, I want to hear your response. Okay, so we're equal there. So Oregon State is the least desirable job. Really this, tough to win there. This this these next several two or three these could these could start to get these start to get tricky because I think there's merits that you could argue for several of these schools over the other one. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna put in my number six slot, and this is this is not an easy thing for me to put here. I'm gonna put Nebraska. And I'm going to put Nebraska because of my number five team, which I will tell you about in a second. But for now, I go Nebraska number six. Uh, yeah, I think this is number seven, Nebraska. Um, I would say the same thing. This is a really tough place to win because you have to recruit nationally. And it's a been a long time since Nebraska's heyday in the mid-90s. I'm not sure these 17, 18 year old kids remember that. In fact, I know that they don't. Now you can win. Nebraska has some good resources. They have a good fan base, but compared to the rest of these jobs, I I think it's in that seventh slot. Yeah, and it's tricky because my next school is going to be Old Miss, and I think Old Miss really elevated itself to the status it did because of a cheating Hugh Freeze. I think a legitimate coach at Old Miss has a very very hard time winning. Yes, you're in the SEC, but you're also in a brutally difficult division you don't have a lot of good homegrown talent in the state of mississippi uh, i think that makes it very difficult you could argue nebraska has a much higher national profile which i think is more or less kind of true uh, but they're not in the sec so for that reason i elevate old miss above nebraska as my number six team as you correctly alluded to nebraska being number seven number six team old miss i'm gonna have number six arkansas this is a decent job, and they have a bigger athletic department than you think they do. But they're an afterthought, and I don't know that they have the kind of program that's sustainable long-term. The Bobby Petrino showed you can win there. It's possible, but I just don't think it's a very attractive job compared to the rest of these on the list. Now, in another year, it might be higher, but right now I'm going to keep them at six. And I go number f- number five with Arkansas. And so I, I, I that's where I said these three, Nebraska, Arkansas, and Miss. There's merits made all over the place. I, for some reason, and I don't have a good reason, hence the for some reason, feel like Arkansas may have a better path to winning than Ole Miss. And I think historically you can make an argument that that is true, given the level of success people have had at Arkansas versus Ole Miss, but you start to split hairs there at some point. So for me... My number five school is Arkansas. All right. I'm going to go number five, Ole Miss. You're right. I think those are pretty close. But Ole Miss, they care. They care enough to cheat and cheat big. So that counts for something. Yeah, that's a good, that's a good point. If, you, if you're willing to cheat <laughs> at that level, then maybe you should be elevated up on the, uh, the list. Number four for me is going to be UCLA. So UCLA is an interesting job. You can definitely win at UCLA. Uh, you have a talent-rich state in California, but I think when you look at the teams above them, they just have a higher national profile. They have a more rabid following. Football means more to the schools. So for that reason, I'm putting UCLA number four. Yeah, UCLA, not a great history. Um, 
not a ton of fan support, but you're right. You're in California. The right coach could win big there, and they haven't found that person. But I, it's a really compelling job. If I were looking at, you know, if you wanted to get out of the meat grinder of the SEC or, you know, what maybe will be in a couple of years, uh, it's not a bad job. Um, ton of recruiting talent, decent amount of resources, though, not to the level of these other schools, which is what knocks it down a little bit. This next one is very difficult for me. And we're down now basically to Tennessee or Texas A&M or Florida. Uh, this one is is hard. I feel like 10 years ago it was a slam dunk no-brainer, but how quickly things change. A&M is spending money, and they are on a mission to win in football right now. Tennessee is not the brand it once was, although Lane Kiffin proved you can recruit nationally there still. I think you can recruit nationally at both schools. I think Tennessee probably still has a higher profile, but they're not in the state of Texas. You can win at Texas A&M without having to recruit any other states. You cannot say the same for Tennessee. The flip side of that coin is Texas A&M is in the division with Nick Saban. And because of that, I'm going to put A&M number three. And I'm going to caveat that by saying if you flip the divisions and put A&M in the east and Tennessee in the west, I would flip my answer there. But solely because of the fact that as a head coach, you have to consider the fact that you will be playing Nick Saban every single year. You will also be facing other established coaches every single year. Tennessee is a more attractive job where you can say, I can come in and win right now at Tennessee, whereas with AM, I've got a lot of hurdles to face each year. I'm going to say Tennessee is my number three job. And you're right, it's close with AM. I think the potential at AM is off the charts. I mean, they are willing to spend big. Tennessee spends big too, but they don't spend the same kind of revenue on coaches. Um, I don't know. Tennessee, I think you can win big there, but the path to like winning really huge is there at AM. And I think it just has a little bit of a higher ceiling for me. Yeah, and I think all those things are true. And that's why it's like the Nick Saban wall is an outside factor wall that I think a smart coach considers. Tennessee is my number two for the reasons we just mentioned. Yeah, um, and then A&M for me. Um, that A&M job, I could see you can make a case it's even better than Florida. That's how good it could be. Now, they haven't had the same kind of history recently as Florida has, but they, they've shown they can create buzz and they can recruit. So uh, you can definitely win there. I still think at the end of the day, though, that Florida's national profile could always be higher than Texas A&M's, just period. If for no other reason than in the state of Florida, you have Florida, Florida State, and Miami, three nationally recognizable football schools. In the state of Texas, most people think of Texas right away. And that is sometimes where the thought of Texas football begins and ends for the average college football fan around the country. Uh, they might think of Texas Tech. They might think of TCU. They might think of AM. Uh, you know, there's a host of others in there. But it's not the same name association, Florida, Florida State, Miami. And I just wonder if it's truly, no matter how much money they spend, could ever really eclipse the reach Florida's brand could have. And obviously, I think, Alan, that's why both of us are putting Florida at number one. Talent-rich state, uh, supportive athletic department, absolutely great fan base, one of the highest on an annual basis donation giving schools. It's really interesting if you look at the top 20 athletic departments based upon revenue. What you're typically seeing is Texas A&M at number one for the past year or two, but that's because they did a tremendous fundraising campaign to 
enlarge their stadium significantly to do a ton of improvements. Whereas Florida every single year, regardless of actually fundraising, has a large share of booster donations that just come into the program. And that's very, very important, I think, to a future coach to look at in general to say, okay, they will support our initiatives. So there's really no reason why a coach would look at Florida and not say this is a top program. You can win here. People have won here. Multiple coaches have won here. Kids will get excited about this program at any given time. And if I'm in California, Washington State, or Maine, people know who the Florida Gators are. And for that reason, I think Florida is the number one job. And I think that regardless of what other jobs came open, you could always make an argument that Florida is right there with amongst the, the number one jobs and anything else is splitting hairs. Yeah, agreed. I mean, I think the tier with Florida are those big, big, big time programs, USC, Ohio State, Texas, Alabama. Uh, you could. There's a few other schools that you maybe would put in that Michigan, Notre Dame, obviously, but a lot of people would still choose Florida. I mean, Urban Meyer famously chose Florida over Notre Dame because he thought he could win bigger there. I guess that's what we're hoping that Scott Frost might do if given the choice. Well, hopefully winter is indeed coming here in the state of Florida. We'll all be keeping an eye on the Frost watch. Enough for your puns there for the week. But with that, that brings a close to this week's pod. We hope you enjoyed all of the coaching discussions, all of the discussion of the team in and of itself, even if we are no longer doing maybe what we're patented for, which is the in-depth X and O's and film room study. As always, as we move forward in this season, if you like the content that you hear, please consider heading on over to Patreon and sponsoring the show. Uh, you can give a donation for as little as two bucks a month to support Alan and I and the and the efforts we bring to you each week. You can also give us a like on Facebook and anytime you want, you can reach us with your messaging for how to improve the program or cover topics that you may be interested in hearing us talk about. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we will say adieu. Enjoy the weekend. Enjoy all of the wonderful football that is going on. And we look forward to seeing you right back here next week. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. 
Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com